Y'all ready? There's my number with me as recording. That's right, it's recording. Hey. Uh, I don't know. Okay, okay, let's get going. We're going on a planet hunt. We're gonna find a big one. We're gonna find a big one. I brought my telescope. I brought my telescope. I'm not scared. scared. You're not scared either? Oh, what's that? What? Hmm, it's got two big jets. It's got two big jets. It's pulling on my rocket ship. It's bending my space time. It's bending my space time. <gasps> I know what that is. It's a hole. It's a black hole. Oh no, we gotta get away. Blast off, blast off, blast off. Whew, I think we got away. We're safe. What's a black hole? What's a black hole? Oh my. Um, it's kind of like a star that ate itself. Let's go have chocolate chip pancakes. Okay, let's go have chocolate chip pancakes. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good Physics Day, everyone. Or maybe today it's Good Astronomy Day, everyone. Yep, today it's all about astronomy on the podcast. And I wasn't actually expecting a little bit of extra astronomy, but it turns out that today or yesterday or whenever this episode releases on May 12th, 2022, we got our first image of the black hole at the center of our galaxy, which is pretty darn fantastic. And interestingly enough, I had already come up with the little ditty that I introduced this episode with even before I saw that announced. So it ends up being even more perfect than it, it would have been originally. But what we're really here to talk about today is exoplanets. And this episode is a little bit different than, than some of my episodes because it doesn't necessarily just focus on education, although I, I will keep bringing the conversation back toward what we can be doing in the classroom. But this was really a special opportunity for me to talk to somebody that happened to come to Hamilton College. Sarah Seeger came to Hamilton to give a presentation about exoplanets, about the hunt for exoplanets, but not just that, but about our hunt for life on other planets. And how is it that we can find life on another planet? What will that take? What will that look like? And Sarah specifically is looking at planet atmospheres and trying to find the signatures in those atmospheres that might suggest that life could be possible there. This was also a cool conversation for me because it was my first live face-to-face -face conversation. Every other interview I've done has been on Zoom, so to actually be sitting across from the person was pretty cool. Trouble is, uh, so I had two microphones recording at the same time, and it turns out when you go to edit that, both microphones are picking up both people. So that was a little bit of an added challenge for me. So you may find at times when both Sarah and I are sort of cross-talking and speaking sort of uh, at the same time that the, the quality of the sound is a little bit different. I had to rely on just one microphone picking up both people. So one person may sound a little bit in the distance. But other than that, I think it turned out great. And it's just such a cool fun topic and I really enjoyed this episode and I hope you will as well. So let's get to it. So the first 41 episodes of Physics Alive were recorded with me in a room armed with my microphone and a guest on Zoom, almost certainly living in another state in the US. But today my guest is sitting right across from me. Hooray! I'm very excited about this and also fully expecting at least one if not many technical challenges. Here we go. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Seeger, Professor of Planetary Science, Professor of Physics, and Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. That's a lot of positions. Uh, her past research is credited with laying the foundation for the field of exoplanet atmospheres. While her current research focuses on exoplanet atmospheres and the future search for signs of life by way of atmospheric biosignature gases, 
The reason I get to sit across from her is because she is here at Hamilton College as this year's Morris Fellow. Uh, the Morris Fellowship Fund was established in 2013 by Charter Trustee Robert S. Morris, Class of 76, to bring to campus a distinguished scholar with specific emerging topic expertise in math or the sciences in order to enhance current academic offerings. That's a bit of a mouthful. Were you, were you told what the Morris Fellowship was or you just said, please come? I was told. <laughs> oh, okay. So the opportunity to speak with and interview a distinguished scientist in person was one that I couldn't pass up. And I'm not even sure poor Sarah here actually had a choice in the matter. Uh, I requested this time block during her visit and here she is. Sarah, I wanna thank you for going along with my plan and for sharing some exoplanet fun with my audience. Thanks so much for having me today. I often like to start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career and how have they helped shape your path? The most important mentor I've had is the late John Bacall. He was a giant in astrophysics. John Bacall helped get the Hubble Space Telescope into space. And he is responsible for helping solve the neutrino problem. How the number of neutrinos measured here coming from the sun helped us understand that neutrinos change type on their way here. Mm -hmm. And John was my postdoc mentor. So after you finish your PhD, usually before you start a faculty job, if you're going that route, you do something in between called a postdoctoral fellowship or postdoctoral position somewhere to kind of gain your own independence. Mm -hmm. And I worked at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where he was the boss. And John was an incredible mentor. Apparently, he had a different plan for each person. So for some people, he was more hands-on. Mm -hmm. For others, he just asked the right question at the right time. Like one day at lunch, because we all had lunch together in this cafeteria with really yummy food on campus, he one day said, so Sarah, how do you decide what you're doing in a given day? Because this was a very open position where you took your own research path. Mm -hmm. And I thought, huh, I never really thought about that. Which kind of explained why I wasn't getting anything done. Mm. <laughs> and perhaps he noticed that. So instead of telling me to get stuff done, he actually would ask that way. And there were several other really key moments like that. Now, the most important gift John gave me was reinforcing my desire to think big. Mm. And the way he would say it is, if you have a great idea that you can back up with physics that is achievable observationally or experimentally sometime in your lifetime, it is worth doing. That so, sounds so counter to what you often hear of, which is, mm, no, you better not stray too far from the, the tried and true. It's like, right. don't, well, don't reach why, out. That's why it was so important having him as a mentor. Now, he's not saying, you know, risk everything to do the craziest thing ever. I don't know what his advice was. My advice I give is think of the pie, a pie chart and you're slicing up that pie. Save a slice for that risky, crazy, fun topic that you're yeah. going to do. <laughs> nice. So since this is a podcast for educators, I have dual interests today. On the one hand, I'm really, really curious and fascinated by everything you have to say about exoplanets and the search for life. Unfortunately, I know you're going to get to talk about that in some of your talks here. So I won't, uh, maybe to the dismay of my audience right now, I won't go into all that. But I'll, I'll make sure to link to some other episodes uh, that you've done that they could get some more of that. But we'll talk about that a little bit. Because on the other hand, I'm also really interested in the best ways to bring these ideas into the classroom. So... We're going to try bringing these two together and we'll kind of bounce back and forth a little bit. Most people probably think of Sarah Seeger, the astrophysicist, but how about Sarah Seeger, the educator? As a professor at MIT, I'm sure you spend some hours in the classroom each week. What are some of the courses that you teach and how do you approach keeping your students excited and engaged? My favorite course is called Exoplanets and <laughs> this class Perfect. is for upper class people, but a freshman or sophomore could probably handle it. And we go through the different exoplanet discovery techniques. Mm. We start with first principles and we derive the equation that describes the detection method. So if it's radial velocity, for example, we work through you know, the Doppler shift and like how, how the um, equation that matches the observation turns out. We don't treat it fully. So we usually don't do the, uh, we usually do circular orbits and not eccentric, although you could extend that mm -hmm. if you wanted to for graduate students, let's say. Right. And then we look at or work with real data. Because for each of these techniques, like for exoplanet transits, for example, you can download data and fit it. 
But we sometimes even do something simpler than that for pedagogical reasons. For example, you can read things off the light curve knowing something about the star and then determine the planet size and orbit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's recap. So get some basic understanding of where the equation comes from, at least a simple version of the system. Look at data and be able to read off the, the transit light curve or the rate of velocity method or some other thing what it is about the planets. You can gain some intuition from the equations and the data. Mm-hmm. Do, do you ever get to go into the sort of the big lecture hall with the introductory courses or um, do you often, are you often teaching, you know, a course like that and some of the more advanced ones? Usually a course like the one I described and the more advanced ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so part of the challenge today is I'm going to be, I'm going to be sort of picking your brain for how could we bring some of this to, to, a first year physics student or uh, a, you know, a, a one semester astronomy student. Um, because I definitely think there's some interesting ways and I'd love to hear what you're thinking. So let's do a little bit of astrophysics here. And we'll start with the basics and you, and you started getting into this a little bit where, um, firstly, we need to find an exoplanet. And so I, I've known coming into this, there, you know, there's this transit method for detection. There was maybe in the past a wobble, dete- uh, a wobble method. And there's plenty more that I don't know about. Uh, I know that. So what are some of the most effective and productive ways to find exoplanets? And while we're at it, maybe you can talk about how many have we actually found up to this point? How, how big are they? How far away from their stars are they? What are some of like the cool, the cool bits of that too? Right. So what's really interesting from the viewpoint of teaching a larger first year lecture, and by the way, I was in a lecture hall today with about 40 students. Mm-hmm. So I tried some of this. <laughs> <laughs> but all these questions you could put to the student actually. Mm-hmm because there's you know, databases mm-hmm. that they can make plots like right from a user interface and they could try to answer these questions themselves. That's what's so great about mm-hmm. this field is okay. all the information's out there. Yeah. So let's just start with what are these planets like? If you were to make a plot of let's say planet size compared to Earth size as a function of orbit till period or orbital distance from the star you, the whole graph would basically be covered. Mm-hmm. Because oh, I saw that graph on your website. That was, because like, you said it was pla- like one of your right. favorite graphs. It's, yeah. like, it's everywhere. Because planets come in all masses, all sizes, all orbits within physical reason. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't have a planet that's so big that it wouldn't be bound to itself. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But it's unbelievable how varied they are. Like planet formation is truly a stochastic or random process somehow. And we don't fully understand how planets form, but we see from the data that their outcome is incredibly diverse. Mm -hmm. So if you want an example, there are some planets that are so close to the star. And remember, close to the star by Kepler's third law means they also orbit the star in a very short period. Some of the planets have orbits of less than one day. So their year is less than one of less oh than Earth Day. Goodness. Yes, and they're so close to the star. Mm-hmm. Some of these are, we can measure their mass and size, and we know their density. They're dense enough to be rocky planets, predominantly uh-huh. rocky. We imagine that they have liquid lava lakes, not from volcanoes, but just from the heating from just, their star. Oh my goodness! I'll pick one more type of planet to tell mm-hmm. you about. The next type of planet we really like in general. It's a planet that's two to three times the size of Earth. So bigger than Earth, but smaller than Neptune, which is four times the size of Earth. That's only four times. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I don't even know all the planets on Earth. I know. But think about this for a second. <laughs> we have a Neptune. We have Earth. We don't have anything in between. But these mm-hmm. in-between planets appear, as far as we can tell, as far as our planet-finding techniques allow, appear to be the most common planet in our galaxy. Hmm. But we don't have anything in our solar wow. system. Okay. Furthermore, these planets have a kind of intermediate density between a pure rocky world and a giant exoplanet like Jupiter that's all hydrogen and helium. They're in intermediate density, so we can't even tell for sure what they're made of. They could be a very exotic imagined planet, a water world, like a scaled up version of one of Jupiter's icy moons. Say it's 50% or more water by mass. It's not like a giant ocean, okay, because there's high pressure on the inside, so it would be a kind of solid. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be, you know, a rocky planet just with a big hydrogen helium envelope so it's kind of mysterious actually i feel like with teaching a course like this called exoplanets you probably don't have to encourage them to be excited too much about 
about the material. <laughs> well, yes, and the class I teach, it is an elective, so mm -hmm. they are self-selected. Yeah, yeah. Um, so could you say a little bit about like a couple of the most common detection methods and just like sort of like the brief summaries of how do those work? Sure. So the first one I'll tell you about is the most popular one today in terms of the sheer volume of number of planets that's find. It's called the transit technique. So I want you to imagine a planet and star that are aligned just so the planet goes in front of the star as seen from our viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So every time the planet orbits the star, it goes in front of the star and the planet causes a tiny drop in brightness. And the brightness drop is related to the planet area compared to the star area. So it's just the ratio of, of areas, actually. So it almost seems sort of fortuitous if there's you know only a I mean, is it even as much as a couple of degrees that it can be Or less even, right? yeah. Or less in fact, it depends it. how close the planet is to the star. Mm -hmm. So my class, by the way, we work all of this out. Mm -hmm. So the closer the planet is to the star, the more likely it is to transit. So a planet mm -hmm. that's yeah. in, let's say, a four-day period orbit about a sun-like star, that probability is about 1 in 10. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For an Earth-Sun analog, 1 in 200 or so. Uh -huh. Wow. So we don't see all of the ones. We just, the method involves looking at lots of stars. Mm -hmm. We have a, at MIT, we conceived of and built most of and now help run a NASA mission called TESS, Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. It's a satellite that orbits Earth in a highly inclined, highly elliptical orbit. And TESS has a very wide field of view. It observes a giant strip of the sky. Think of the constellation Orion. Now imagine four of those stacked on top of each other, 24 by 90 degrees. That's like a huge, mm -hmm. it stares at one strip of the sky for a month, and there are millions of stars in that strip. And we have sort of our favorites, like the brighter ones are, are better, because photons, mm -hmm. we need more photons to make good measurements. But giant computers, some at NASA, some at MIT, some other places, turn through that data and search for the transiting planets, because they're rare. But when you're talking, oh, say, a 1 in 200 chance, and you have millions, yeah, we've lots. <laughs> so right now, we just passed, we the community just passed 5,000 as the f official number, but uh -huh. there's way more. I mean, mm -hmm. every star appears to have a planetary system. If we could find all of them, we would just have untold numbers. I just love the fact that, you know, since, like, when we were kids, there were eight planets and we could barely have dreamed. Or nine, right? Or, oh, right, nine, of course, yes. <laughs> I, I'm actually used to saying eight now. It's amazing. And now all of a sudden, oh, that's just amazing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, the other technique I wanted to mention is called radial velocity. Kind of an awkward name, but all stars are moving with respect to our, our sun, our star. And imposed on that motion, imposed on that motion, if there's a planet orbiting the star, you know, the planet and star are orbiting their common center of mass. So this is sometimes called the wobble method mm -hmm. because the star appears to be moving or wobbling. Mm -hmm. But we only see the line of sight motion. So if a planet, for example, would be orbiting in the plane of the sky, we wouldn't see that motion. Mm -hmm. We're only measuring the line of sight motion. Mm -hmm. And this line of sight motion is measured by the Doppler shift. Oh, so okay. when the planet, uh, when the star appears to be coming towards you, the light is blue shifted. And when it appears, is the star appears to be going away from you, it's redshifted. So astronomers measure oh. the spectrum of light. And that spectrum is shifting relative to a template. Wow. Back and forth, wow. back and forth, back and forth. But it's a little complicated, but there's a bit of a degeneracy here because you could have a line of sight planet, or imagine if you had a more massive planet, slightly inclined, you're only getting the line of sight component of that motion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what's amazing mm -hmm. is that yeah. over um, the last you know decades, Astronomers have been able to measure the precision of motion of the star along the line of sight to one meter per second to tens of meters per second. That is like walking speed. <laughs> and so it would take a lot longer to tell you all the different steps that yeah, led to yeah. this. But wow, I mean, this field is really a precision measurement field. Well, and, and wow, the, the fact that there could be four or five planets all influencing that wobble. You know, maybe one, like one really big one doing the biggest influence. But so somehow the equations are able to disentangle well, all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. I mean, the way mm -hmm. people do it, if you want to know the truth, it <laughs> is you have the data, you find the biggest signal, you fit 
the data, mm -hmm. remove that signal. Ah, and you okay. look for another yes. periodic signal yes. and just kind of keep going down. And then once you know all the signals, then you can model them all jointly. Mm -hmm. oh, so, well, mm -hmm. well, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I know, it's cool. I really do think my course, though, we could adapt it for a larger audience, not upper-level upper-class MIT students, but we could actually um, make it good for a larger class of even Astronomy 101 students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think... I. I feel like there's so much maybe need now in in these sort of first year astronomy courses to really start talking about the things we're really studying today and the big questions of, of now. Um, right. You know, we, we can give sort of homage to the past, but maybe not spend, you know, weeks and weeks on that. Right, right. And the great thing about this is there's some really wonderful things out there. There's crowdsourcing to find transits. I can imagine assigning that mm -hmm. to some Astronomy 101 students, crowdsourcing. I, like I heard a story about that recently where, where there was somebody, uh, you know, a professor, and there was sort of an amateur astronomer who found something just looking at light curves exactly. in, in their home and said, whoa, there's something here. And the crowdsourcing, it farms out chunks of light curves to people looking at them. And they put more than one person, about probably 30 people on the same light curve, mm -hmm. just so you know there's okay, a, yeah, like yeah. a kind of crowdsourced consensus. But also, when I describe the transit light curve, it's just an area ratio. So even the students who are afraid of math, they can do that. Mm -hmm. We don't have to give them all the equations that are more complicated. We yeah. can give them a set of the equations, and they could look at the transit light curves and figure out the planet size, given the size of the star, for mm -hmm. example. I want to think about the transit method for a little bit. So I'm thinking in an introductory classroom, um, like the first idea that came into mind was, OK, a pendulum sort of mimics circular motion. What if we have a, a light bulb? and a pendulum swinging in front of it, and then we have a light detector on the other side. It's like, I wonder if that might sort of mimic the, the physics of, like, it actually generates a, a live um, light signal versus time, like and it. you can, you like can do that. So I, I'm curious if, so like, that's one example. I'm curious if, have you heard of other things that maybe have been brought into the classroom that could sort of just like be a real quick, simple model of how, it's like, how can we get some data into your hands um, as a physical model before going to, the, the, the databases. Yeah, I like that. I'm probably going to have to go away and think about that one mm -hmm. for that specific one. I do other hands-on things, though. You know, with spectra, how you can, you know, have a diffraction grading or mm -hmm. a tube yes. with a diffraction grading and yes. see spectral features. Yep. So there are a lot of hands-on things you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when you mentioned the other, the, the radial velocity, that one sounds a little more complex to try to make a simpler model right. for. But I like where this conversation's going. Mm -hmm. I think we definitely need to add that component. Yeah, yeah, these are the pieces. And that... even something that the students could do on their own rather than watching a demo, because people love hands-on. But yeah, this is the sort of thing that, that I really like to think about. How can we take the, the complex physics? And in this case, actually, it's not very complex, <laughs> the transit. It's uh, maybe complex to get the telescopes up there to do it, but it's actually a really simple idea that can I think we could easily model. And then I love that idea of going to the databases. Do you have some off the top of your head? It's like, where, where would teachers be able to go to find data to give to their students? Well, the data is all archived at a, it's like a little bit of a more complicated question because okay. yeah, the database for professionals, it might not be as easy to use mm -hmm. as something they'd need. So I don't have an answer off the top of my head on that one. Okay, maybe I'll follow up with you. And sure. if, if, there, if there's some sources that you can find, I'll definitely put them in the, the show notes for my episode because I love putting resources out there that, that um, teachers can, can check out. Okay, so back to some of the physics. We've now found a bunch of exoplanets of all shapes and, well, not of different shapes, probably, of all sizes and distances from their star. Uh, but we don't simply want to know that they are there. We want to know all about them. And of course, the big driving question on all of our minds is, is there life out there? And it seems that your research is honing in on that. Your website describes that you study exoplanet atmospheres, trying to understand their atmosphere composition and temperature, and that we want to be able to recognize planet atmospheres like Earth's with water vapor, oxygen, ozone, and carbon dioxide. And that seems incredible to me that we can do spectroscopy on the atmosphere of a planet that I would assume is overshadowed by the star it orbit, the, the star it orbits. But I think I'm already starting to see maybe the hints of an answer to that that you said before, that you take the star, maybe you subtract it out, and you see what's left. So um, could you say a little bit more about you know some of the ways that we can detect these atmospheres and, and how that is important for our understanding of uh, is there life out there? Right. Well. The main way we study exoplanet atmospheres today is by the transit method. When the planet mm. goes in front of the star, 
some of the starlight shines through the atmosphere. Mm. And some of the starlight gets blocked by gases in the atmosphere that absorb that starlight. Think of the planet atmosphere as tiny, like the skin of an onion on an onion Mm, against the backdrop of the whole star. Mm -hmm. So we need a, in the ideal case, a small background star, a planet with a puffy atmosphere. So there's a lot of, we actually have a metric where we make a plot and we rank newly discovered transiting planets on how good they are to have their atmosphere Mm. followed up Mm -hmm. by this method. So imagine observing the star by itself and then the star when the planet is transiently in the star and you can subtract out the starlight. So I actually was the first one to introduce this idea to the community Mm. back in the Mm. year 2000. Okay. Like I wrote down, it was before we even had a transiting planet at all. Mm-hmm. There are about 30 radial velocity discovered planets. Okay. And I was just starting my postdoc. And all the other postdocs, for small talk, here's a good question for small talk if you go to a conference with scientists. You say, what's the next big thing in your field? And remember we were talking about probabilities for transit. Yeah. We had about 30 planets. The ones that are close to the star that have a 1 in 10 chance of transiting, there are about six or seven of those. Mm. Of course, if we get 10, it doesn't mean we're going to have a transit, right? But the more we get, each one has a good probability. So I would say a transit's going to be discovered. And so I was working on Mm. this idea of the transit um, atmosphere Mm -hmm. by when the planet goes in front of the star. (laughs) So it's just sort of a crazy thing that our techniques and our instruments and everything got better and better. And so many people flooded into the field to Mm -hmm really advance it. And now there's dozens and dozens of exoplanet atmospheres have been observed in this way. A lot of them using Mm. the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm. But we can fast forward now because you ask, how does this relate to learning more about the planet? You know, we've seen that some of these planets have clouds on them because the starlight is getting um, blocked. Mm. We don't see any atmosphere features. Mm. I actually forgot to say one thing. I wanted to just explain this somewhat complicated concept which we could even, you know, to our imaginary Astronomy 101 class explain. It's really, really important for this concept. Mm -hmm. And that is, I want you to think of the planet going in front of the star, and there's a drop in brightness. And imagine we're observing that planet at a wavelength where the atmosphere is transparent. So there's no molecules Mm -hmm. or atoms, no gases absorbing. That planet is a fixed size. Now imagine we're observing at a different wavelength, slightly different wavelength, where the atmosphere is very strongly absorbing, Mm. like right in the middle of a water vapor feature or Mm. something very strong, carbon dioxide. Then the planet looks a tiny, tiny bit bigger Mm. because Mm. now in addition to the planet blocking the light, there's this annulus, this ring around it. Yeah. So what we're actually looking for, we're measuring transits at different wavelengths. Mm -hmm. And we're looking to see whether some of those transits are slightly bigger, which implies there's an atmosphere attached to that planet there's a wavelength where there's a gas strongly absorbing. And, of course, my mind immediately thinks of visible wavelengths, but the, these telescopes are measuring, I'm sure, deep into the, the microwave and maybe not ultraviolet and UV as much because everything's gonna, so much is going to be redshifted as it comes to us. Right, right. Well, there's a lot of concepts there. But I'm just thinking of so like sort of the first, like, what's the, the breadth of the wavelengths that we're looking at? So the breadth depends partly on the telescope and partly on the star brightness. You know, in microwave and radio, unfortunately, things get faint. Think of the black body. Mm-hmm. You know, it just mm-hmm. drops off, yeah, right? right? Yeah, it's right. too faint. We can't really do okay. transits out there. Okay. And then it depends where the telescope operates. So Hubble's operating in the visible wavelengths to near infrared, like out to a couple of microns. Our new telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, which launched on Christmas morning of 2021, that telescope is mostly infrared. It starts around 0.7 microns. And our main place we want to observe is out to about five microns. And we can go out to maybe 20 microns. So the Webb telescope will do what Hubble has, let's say, mastered for hot planets, planets with puffy atmospheres. Webb is going to help us push down to small rocky planets, some of them in the so-called habitable zone of the host star. So do you get to, I mean, I know it's not you personally, but, you know, the, the teams that you work with, uh, do you get, like, when new telescopes are going up, do you get to have buy time on it? Like, you know, sometimes it's going to be here doing this type of project. Sometimes it's going to be here doing that type of project. Yes, it's really interesting how resources are shared because the mm-hmm. Webb Telescope, of course, it's a NASA project. It's also European Space Agency and the uh-huh. Canadian Space Agency also contributed. But there, it's everybody's telescope because we all paid mm-hmm. for it. 
even you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Taxpayers' dollars. But there, it's like a competitive process. So you write a proposal that is peer-reviewed, and they're double-blinded, by the way. So you write a proposal that's peer-reviewed, and then you're allocated time, supposedly based on the merit of your proposal. Mm -hmm. There's also a category if you have contributed to the telescope. You built an instrument, you advised on the telescope. That category is guaranteed time, mm -hmm. you know, if you've done some mm -hmm. contribution. Yeah, yeah. So there's both of those. Then furthermore, there's other programs. There's called Early Release Science. Some teams got together and made a proposal and they got a lot of time, their data will all be public early on so that others in the community can figure out how to use the data, what does the data look like. Mm -hmm. Switching to a separate category, for large ground-based telescopes, let's say you have an idea, you want to build a telescope, you politic and get people together, then they buy in in that case, because they're paying to help mm -hmm. build the telescope. Mm -hmm. And then you'd be buying like a certain number of, it might translate into a certain number of nights a year. So have you been involved with sort of helping design your own telescope to send up to do the things that you want like, to have it focus on doing? In fact, yes, actually. And there's so many possibilities. But my dream is to someday help find a true Earth twin. Mm -hmm. We talked about that before. The Earth and Sun, one in 200 chance to transit. It's mm -hmm. a hard problem. Yeah. Our yeah. Earth is small compared to our Sun. You know, many of the stars we favor are small red dwarf stars. Mm -hmm. And in this case, what I imagine would be to have a constellation. You know, we're always hearing about the mega constellations now. Mm. Mega constellations being put up by Starlink and now Amazon and others so that people all around the globe can have internet okay. from space. Yeah. yeah, there's thousands. Mm -hmm. Well, this constellation would be looking up. And because the transit is so rare, uh, the idea of looking at, you know, thousands of the idea of looking at thousands of stars at one time won't work because we can't look at that many stars f for long enough to catch the transit, a one-year transit for one or two years mm -hmm. or more. Mm -hmm. So my idea is yeah. instead of one big, expensive, complicated telescope, send up lots of little tiny telescopes. Each would look at one star at a time for as mm -hmm. long as it can. Yeah. A few years, except for the time of year when the sun is in the way, if it gets in the way. Mm -hmm. So long story short, we built, we designed problem solved, built, launched a tiny telescope to demonstrate that the telescope could accomplish mm -hmm. what it needs to okay. as like a prototype to the constellation idea. Mm -hmm. And what we had to do was to measure the brightness of the star precisely. It turns out you have to have your telescope pointed very stably. So the centroid of the star is on the same fraction of a pixel at all times. Mm. This is because, you know, if you, mm -hmm. un if you took your phone and got the detector out, <laughs> you don't want to do that, but if you did, and you shine a laser or an LED at your detector and measure what comes back at you, the response, like what comes back at you, varies by up to 40% across a pixel. And so if you're, you know, it's shaking around, yeah. you're not going to be measuring, able to make a precision measurement. There's sort of a lot behind that statement. But for a small satellite or a small telescope, it moves around a lot. Like we couldn't point it precisely because even the reaction wheels that stabilize it have some residual jitter motion. Mm -hmm. So this tiny telescope had to demonstrate new technology to be able to point something in that mass category a hundred times better than anything before it. Mm -hmm. And we did that with an Im like an image stabilizing type of system. I don't know if you've ever tried like the binoculars or cameras that image stabilize. You press the button and it goes from shaking, it compensates. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah so that's what we did. Mm -hmm. There's it, yeah. So I have in that case had that. Hmm. We were tech demo rather than science. But in yeah. the future, <laughs> there might be the constellation that does science. Mm -hmm. Wow. We didn't finish this thing about life. Maybe we should wrap that. Oh, yes. Right. Sorry. Okay. I was going to see where I was right. on my question. Yeah. But, okay. So the whole dream that astronomers have had for longer than they've even known is to look for a gas in an exoplanet atmosphere that doesn't belong, that's out of equilibrium with its environment, out mm -hmm. of context, mm -hmm. that is so unusual that it might be attributed to life. Okay. Like here on Earth, this is how people got the idea. Almost 100 years ago, astronomers first pointed this out, that oxygen on our planet is so reactive. It shouldn't be in our atmosphere at all. Yet here we have it to 20% by volume. It's only here because we have plants and photosynthetic bacteria generating all that oxygen continuously. So without plants and photosynthetic bacteria, we would have virtually no oxygen. Like we'd literally have 10 orders of magnitude less oxygen. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's the idea is look for oxygen, look for other gases that just 
they shouldn't be there. They're too reactive. They're there in too high quantities. And that has kind of been the, the foundation of the search for signs of life beyond Earth. However, you know, when the rubber hits the road, it's not as pretty as it sounds, actually. Mm. And it's, it's quite complicated to think of any gas, you know, that we could robustly celebrate if we detected in another planet that mm. we could attribute to life. So we're still sorting through everything. Right, because it's, I mean, we have the added challenge of, it's like we don't even actually quite understand how life got here in the first place. And, and of course, we have our one data point and, and no others. So we can, I guess, make some assumptions, but uh, they may turn out to be not necessarily correct that it has to look like that. Uh, another one I saw interesting, and I think it was in regards to Venus, um, was there something called phosphine, phosphine which, right. which I, I don't understand much myself, but um, it seemed to, uh, what I was reading seemed to indicate that this is something that is created by living organisms. Yeah, I was actually part of the team that made the announcement of the discovery of phosphine on Venus. My team had been working through every possible gas that on an exoplanet, we're just kind of getting ready. We want to have a menu of options. Mm -hmm. If someone finds an unusual gas, what does it mean? We were working on phosphine, which most people don't know about, because here on Earth, the phosphorus atom wants to go with oxygen, not with hydrogen, Mm -hmm. because phosphine Mm -hmm. is a phosphorus atom and three hydrogen atoms. Here on Earth, we have very little hydrogen, the temperature and pressure, it's very unfavorable for phosphine to form. Yet, however, there is a tiny bit of phosphine on Earth. We humans make it as pesticides. Life appears to make it in oxygen-free environments like wetlands, inside animal guts, in Antarctica over penguin colonies, penguin poop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's really amazing is that another astronomer was thinking about phosphine. It's so obscure, honestly. Professor Jane Greaves in the UK decided to spend part of her pie. Remember we talked about your time and the mm-hmm. small slice of the pie on some crazy idea? Yeah. Yeah, she actually decided to try to search for signs of life on Venus. And she looked at the literature and tried to find a gas that could be associated with life that also mm-hmm. did have spectral features out in the microwave or radio, where she's an expert using radio astronomy. So she did. She proposed, got rejected, proposed, got rejected, proposed, got accepted. And she used two different radio telescopes. Meanwhile, it's so obscure that someone connected our two teams. Mm -hmm. And we helped her interpret what it means. It ended up being very controversial. And this is like a less, it's like a future vision of exoplanets. Do you believe the signal? Do you, if you believe the signal, do you believe it's attributed to the right molecule? If you believe it's attributed to the right molecule, can it be made by any known chemistry, mm-hmm. given what we know about the planet? Which Venus is quite a lot. Exoplanets, pretty much nothing. But each of those three things I mentioned, people are fighting about. Right, right. I mean, I, I love the fact that there is so much in our own solar system that is so accessible to us within the next, you know, decades and, and, and centuries um, that that we have so much to explore to try to nail some of those things down a little bit. Absolutely. It's funny. I, I, like I, every now and again, I end up on the NASA website, and I just happen to look up. I was curious about Pluto, and I'm like, what? Pluto has five moons? Like, I, you know, I don't pay attention. I don't pay attention for a few years, and all of a sudden, it's like, you know, just a little thing like that. And it's just amazing that we've, we've seen so many discoveries. Things. And remember, we used to think that Pluto was just a boring old thing. Mm-hmm. Yet it has these ice mountains, like as high as the Rockies. Yeah, it's crazy. It sounds like I think this one's going to be a little bit tougher, but let's let's think about it anyway. So back in the physics and astronomy classroom, is there a way that we could think about modeling exoplanet atmosphere spectroscopy, just sort of in a, a, a simple way? Is there a way to how, how would you, how would you think about maybe doing that, or do you think that's a little more more in the realm of simulations? Um, or real telescope data that we'd have to look at? Or is there something that we could do with some kind of chemistry spectroscopy where we can look at samples and get sort of a flavor of what you're looking at in space? This is a great question. I'm going to have to take these things away and think about it harder. So far, I've done two separate but related things, an activity in the classroom with the diffraction gratings, or I have this really nice tube, um, got a very nice diffraction grating, and you know, looking at the sky looking at different objects, you know, the fluorescent lights. Mm-hmm. You know how you can get the tubes with yes. the high voltage? Yep. Oh, absolutely. I love so those. it's like, what is a spectrum in a way that mm-hmm. students can fool around on their own? 
-hmm. We also, someone in my department owns a few, some infrared cameras. So we sometimes let the students loose with those and photograph things around the room. You know what they do? They photograph the electric outlet. Okay. In this one classroom I had, for some reason there was a sink. So like they photographed the hot water running. Mm -hmm. And you, you bring like a garbage bag. You bring things like to confuse. Mm -hmm. So there's a way for them to get a feeling of what is, you know, thermal emission, what is um, spectroscopy. Right, yeah. But yeah. I haven't connected it. And then we separately will think through conceptually what we already talked about, how the planet changes size as a function of wavelength if an atmospheric mm -hmm. gas is absorbing at a specific wavelength. Then we talk through that, and again, we do look at data. That's real data, you know, and try to figure out what it's telling us. Mm -hmm. Is it a straight line? Is it not? But I have to, motivated by you, think of a way to connect those two better. Well, and I'm, I'm especially motivated now. So I've never taught an astronomy class before, but next year I will be teaching astronomy for the first time. And so now all of a sudden these questions, like I've started looking at the textbooks and thinking about how can I bring some of the, the um, experimental modeling things I really like to do in, into astronomy? Because this stuff, it, it, these topics fascinate me, but, and I love the hands-on right. models. And so. so if you do want to do anything in exoplanets, I can help you get a list of things together. So I was just sort of remembering in real time. So in addition to the two things I described, there's also this very nice website. It's actually about Earth and greenhouse gases, but it lets uh -huh. students play around. Like you can zero out all the gases. What if Earth had no gases? How would its emission spectrum look like uh, from space uh -huh. looking okay. down? And then you get a black body. Yeah. And then you can just uh, add only water or only uh -huh. carbon dioxide, and you can change them. And it doesn't recalculate the temperature, but you can do a surface temperature offset to see um, how the surface temperature would change for conservation of energy, which you require, because no new energy is created or destroyed in the atmosphere. So most of my class, you know, I try to spend like half the class with the students actually doing something. Yeah, yeah. So I have like a list of things, but I do like what you could give back is connect, you know, doing the thing in between. So oddly enough, you are the second Morris Fellow in as many weeks to give a talk here at Hamilton College. The 2020 public presentation by Nick Lane, a professor of evolutionary biochemistry at the University College of uh, University College London, was canceled in 2020 due to. Wait, Nick Lane was here last week. He was here last week. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and and his Actually, talk was canceled due to a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> I've met him before. Okay. Yeah. So, but he got rescheduled for for last week and gave a talk titled "Energy and Matter at the Origin of Life." Uh, so it sounds like you, you're familiar with his work. Uh, he supports a hypothesis centered on alkaline hydrothermal vents, where inorganic materials provided conditions for the eventual development of organic compounds and other components necessary for life. So I think it's really cool that one week we had a presentation about these extreme environments that may have led to life's origins on Earth. And now you're here to speak about all of those planets out there that we have found that have extreme environments and maybe not so extreme environments uh, that could potentially support life. So. I must have a question here somewhere. Uh, the presence of liquid water somewhere, maybe anywhere on a planet or moon seems to be a big focus. Is is this the most important piece or are there other considerations? It's definitely our focus right now, a planet mm -hmm. that can support liquid water. We do think of a few criteria and some of them overlap. Mm -hmm. So the planet has to have the right temperature at the surface for covalent bonds because mm -hmm. we need complex molecules. Mm -hmm. But within that temperature range, water can be a liquid. We also need some kind of liquid, a solvent, so molecules you know, can break apart and reform. Mm -hmm. And water is a good one for astronomy because when you think of planets, there aren't that many materials that can be liquid at a range of temperatures and pressures, a type of planet, furthermore, that we can observe. So for example, one of Saturn's moons, Titan, actually has liquid, lakes. Mm -hmm. but they're not water, they're ethane and methane. But a Titan-like planet would be too cold, dim, and faint for us to observe. So water is still mm. number one. We also need to consider an energy source, because all the planets we're consider but because all the planets we're considering are near a star, they can get energy there. Mm -hmm. Some people want to add one more criteria, and that is changing conditions mm. to spur Darwinian evolution. Okay. Yeah. But I usually don't worry about that one because planets, <laughs> things are dynamic. To answer your question, you know, we kind of do oversimplify things in astronomy, admittedly. Mm -hmm. We often teach in the kind of an order of magnitude fashion. Yeah. So really, it's the right distance from the star that we're looking for now. And we're trying to get more information about atmospheres so we can understand greenhouse power of the atmosphere and estimate the surface temperature. Mm -hmm. 
do you have some good candidates for Earth 2.0 at this point, or is is it we're still looking for the best candidates? It's a tough one, honestly. You know, our Earth is so small, so much lower mass and so dim compared to our sun, we can't attack the Earth twin yet. However, we can approach like an Earth cousin, a rocky planet transiting a small red dwarf star. So we pick the most favorable planet finding technique and the most favorable planet star combination. And there's a lot of reasons why it's like an Earth, really like an Earth cousin, different from Earth. But we do, we have three or four prime suspects right now that are also mm -hmm. accessible with the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. And those three or four rocky planets in the so-called habitable zone of the, M, the red dwarf host star, they're all slated to be observed. And to make a long story short, the first set of observations aims to establish if there's an atmosphere there at all. Mm -hmm. These small red dwarf stars, they give off a lot of flares. They have a Earlier in their history, they gave off a lot of energy output that some people think might have wiped away the atmosphere. But should they show signs of an atmosphere by way of gases like carbon dioxide or perhaps water vapor, then we can take the next, next step and propose for more time to get more data to look for weaker signals, perhaps a gas that doesn't belong, phosphine, mm -hmm. <laughs> that we might have a way to attribute to life. So there are a few candidates. They're going to be observed. In a year or two, you should be hearing about them. When you started your career was such an exciting time to get started and now to be involved. It, it seems like, you know, I think of in the early 1900s, the, the quantum mechanical revolution. It just, it just sounds like we're sort of in the, uh, the, the exoplanet and un understanding the universe revolution right now. It's definitely a revolution. When I started, by the way, it was in the field. Oh, okay. I started in the <laughs> mid-1990s. I was in graduate school and I'd finished a research project on cosmology, kind of like a master's thesis, which was a bit of a dead end. And right at that time, exoplanets, the first reports of exoplanets were coming out. But think about it for a moment. We only had, it's terrible, thinking about in terms of science education, we only had one example, our solar system, mm -hmm. right. to build all our theories on. It's incredible to think about this. Everyone was looking for a Jupiter, a Jupiter mass, planet at Jupiter's orbital distance. Mm -hmm. Now Jupiter mm -hmm. takes 12 years to go around our star. That's a tough transit to look for. The first planet people discovered was a Jupiter-mass planet in a four-day period orbit. Mm -hmm. That, by the way, was awarded, that discovery was awarded the Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, okay. So it was a couple of years ago. And so, wow, I mean, who would believe that? Most people didn't, mm -hmm. right? As scientists, right? We're either right. skeptical by nature and we're trained to be skeptical. Yeah. So there's a lot of back and forth. And right after that one was discovered, a different set of researchers looked at their data and they already had a few planets in their data, but they didn't know because they weren't looking <laughs> they for weren't those looking short period planets, right? Oh, wow. So that time, my thesis advisor suggested I work on the atmospheres of these new planets. Mm -hmm. I was actually his first student, so apparently he didn't realize, usually we don't give students such risky projects. And so at the time, it wasn't like really a field mm -hmm. yet. People were, were skeptical. And when enough planets were discovered that people had to believe they were real, people thought the field would go nowhere because the numbers just, the numbers of how precise the measurements have to be just seemed outrageous mm -hmm. at the time. Well, lucky you that you got an advisor that didn't know better because that ended up being better. <laughs> yeah, definitely where can we go to learn more about your work? Um, if, if folks who are listening would like to, to, to see some of what you've been up to um, or to see some of the, the, the work about exoplanets. Well, for my work, you can go to my website, sarahseeger.com. I'd like to also send you to venuscloudlife.com where, where we summarize our work on, on Venus and missions to Venus. For exoplanets, I would like everyone to try Eyes on Exoplanets. It's a NASA software that you download, and it lets you click on stars that have known exoplanets. Mm. It shows you like a real map of the sky and where planets are. You can also get a view of the night sky from anywhere on Earth, a better view than we have, because yeah. no clouds, no yep. faint stars. <laughs> so I'd like to send you there. And NASA has an excellent website, actually, which is really, it has a lot of different you know levels of information i'd like to send people there as well 
Yeah, thank you. I'll absolutely share that. And I'm already looking forward to checking out some of those on my own. And if you think of any others, you can you can send them to me later. Thank you so much for speaking with me today for doing this this podcast. You've been you've been doing this work for a couple of decades and you sound like a kid in a candy store talking about it still and that's just an amazing energy and and vibrancy you bring to the to the community. So thank you. Thank you so much. Again, thanks so much to Sarah for taking the time to speak with me today and to do so in person. After this conversation, I had the opportunity to see her present twice. One presentation was for the physics majors at Hamilton College where she focused on her Venus work, and the second was for the general public, where she honed in on the general search for exoplanets. She had a really great activity during the public presentation. She trained the audience to identify exoplanets from a light curve. She discussed the differences that we should expect when seeing an exoplanet transit a star versus transiting another star, which would be a binary star system. So we were looking at actual transit data and trying to determine if the, the light dip looked a little bit more like a U-shape, which would be a planet, or if it was more of a V-shape, which would be a star. And we had the chance to vote on each one as an audience. So just like in the classroom, these interactive activities where we make predictions and discuss with our neighbors was such an impactful and memorable part of the talk. And I actually remembered the content. While I was talking with Sarah, I suggested a demonstration experiment that I thought might show a transit curve. I suggested maybe we take a light bulb that is being detected by a light sensor. And then if you swing a pendulum back and forth in front of the light bulb, that would mimic the circular motion of a planet orbiting around a star. So I decided I need to give that a try. So I went into my laboratory equipment, found a light bulb, found a light sensor from the company Vernier, and I got a pendulum and it worked. Uh, it actually worked really quickly. I, I set it up and uh, I was able to see a very convincing transit. Uh, in, in fact, as the pendulum swung back and forth, for most of the time, the light curve was at a maximum, but then you would get these sharp dips that looked just like the, that looked just like the data that, that we see from the telescopes. And then upon sort of zooming in on a single dip, you were able to see a little bit of the structure. And now it was kind of low resolution, but it was just sort of a quick experiment and it was able to show it. So I've put a picture of my setup and an example of the data that I collected in the show notes. So you can check that out as well. And if you've got equipment and you do some teaching and you're interested, I'd love to see if you could give it a try or if you've tried out other things yourself and share some of those ideas with me. I'd love to take a look at it. But yeah, go check out the show notes and you can see uh, this transit curve that I was able to produce with a simple demonstration. I encourage you to check out the websites that Sarah recommended. You can find all of the links in the show notes on your podcast app or at physicsalive.com exoplanets. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates and be part of the conversation on Twitter at Physics Alive. If you enjoy the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating. You just need to go to shows on your app, select Physics Alive, scroll down past the recent episodes, and click on Tap to Rate. This will increase the chances that you will be the next person to discover an exoplanet. Or it will help more educators find the show. It's one of the two. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you enjoyed the discovery of exoplanets. Today's action step? Well, go explore some of them yourself. I'll put a few of my favorites in the show notes. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you not fall into a black hole and be well. Let's go have chocolate chip pancakes. Okay, let's go have chocolate chip pancakes. <laughs>